makers and takers. Why conservatives work harder, feel happier, have closer families, take fewer drugs, give more generously, value honesty more, are less materialistic and envious, whine less, and even hug their children more than liberals. By Peter Schweitzer. Narrated by Johnny Heller. Copyright 2008 by Peter Schweitzer. This unabridged audiobook is published by arrangement with Doubleday, an imprint of the Doubleday Broadway Publishing Group, a division of Random House Incorporated, and was produced in the year 2008 by Tantor Media Incorporated, which holds the copyright thereto. Introduction Why Conservatives and Liberals Are Different All people are born alike, Groucho Marx once said, except Republicans and Democrats. Groucho might have been joking, but today the differences between liberals and conservatives are widely discussed and debated, and somehow they always break to the advantage of the left. What's more, it's not conservative ideas that are under assault, but conservatives themselves. Conservatives are said to suffer from severe personality defects and a host of other maladies that make them dysfunctional, if not actually dangerous. George Lakoff, a professor of linguistics at the University of California at Berkeley, where else, has a popular theory. Embracing the unimpeded pursuit of self-interest, conservatives will do pretty much anything to get what they want. Lakoff has nightmares because conservatives are mean and greedy, and what is even scarier is that they believe what they say, on top of which they're abusive to their kids. They ignore their children when they cry and are instead busy beating them with sticks, belts, and paddles, he writes. Unlike conservatives, Democrats believe in working for the public good and social justice, Lakoff explains, without presenting a shred of evidence. But he doesn't lay out these theories in books released by fringe publishers. These ideas come from his book Moral Politics, released by the University of Chicago Press. What explains this horrid emotional and psychological wasteland that is the modern conservative? Lakoff, who is not a psychologist, speculates that conservatives are the product of bad parenting. Raised in a strict father home, they are emotionally warped and wounded, and this explains why they are apparently prone to anger and violence. Lakoff warns, the more children brought up with strict father values, the more conservatives we will have. That this is a very bad thing apparently needs no argumentation. Liberals, on the other hand, are products of a nurturing home, and that's why they're so generous and caring. A true liberal, Lakoff writes, is empathetic, helps the disadvantaged, protects those who need protection, promotes and exemplifies fulfillment in life, and takes care of himself so he can do all this. Lakoff is no isolated crank. Howard Dean, chairman of the Democratic National Committee, has hailed him as one of the most influential political thinkers of the progressive movement and made his book required reading for his staff. Democratic senators have invited him to speak at private retreats and he was considered an official aide-de-camp to the Kerry campaign. His ideas get regular play on PBS and NPR and his books are assigned in dozens of college classrooms. Other academics have made similar scientific claims. In March 2006, a pair of professors from UC Berkeley Cal Coincidence published a paper in the Journal of Research and Personality which explained that insecure, whiny children grow up to be conservatives. 
The article was immediately picked up by major news outfits like the Chicago Sun-Times and Canada's Toronto Star. Remember the whiny, insecure kid in nursery school, the one who always thought everyone was out to get him and was always running to the teacher with complaints? Chances are he grew up to be a conservative, noted the Sun-Times. The confident kids turned out liberal and were still hanging loose, turning into bright, non-conforming adults with wide interests. The study reasons that insecure kids look for reassurance provided by tradition and authority and find it in conservative politics. Never mind that the study was based entirely on the subjective observations of two admittedly liberal researchers. The finding was embraced by news outlets around the world because it conformed to the media image of conservatives as being psychologically deformed. Another group of professors from, you guessed it, UC Berkeley, the University of Maryland, and Stanford University claimed in another study that conservatives are emotionally unstable, motivated by fear and aggression, prone to dogmatism. They struggle with terror management and are subject to uncertainty avoidance. Given all of this, why would you want to be a conservative or even live near one? The authors claimed in American Psychological Association Psychological Bulletin that conservatives support such things as, are you ready, the Indian caste system and apartheid in South Africa because they're afraid of change. Naturally, conservatives are not as integratively complex as liberals, can you say simple-minded, and are prone to embrace simplistic cliches and stereotypes. Apparently, Homer Simpson votes Republican. Talk show host Rush Limbaugh and former President Ronald Reagan think a lot like Hitler and Mussolini, these academics assure us, because they all preach a return to an idealized past and condone inequality. The researchers reveal their own bizarre political views when they include both Joseph Stalin and Fidel Castro as politically conservative leaders. Evidently, because communists are resistant to giving up political power, that makes them conservatives. How did they reach this scientific conclusion? By looking at politician speeches, other research articles, no bias there, of course, and verdicts rendered by judges. Despite the clear ideological agenda couched in academic language, the study found its way into dozens of publications, including the San Francisco Chronicle and the New York Times. The study, by the way, was funded by federal grants. A growing number of academics have also embraced this view. Conservatives are selfish, says Robert Reich, once Bill Clinton's Secretary of Labor and now a professor at Berkeley, where else, and they pander to the worst in us. The late John Kenneth Galbraith, professor at Harvard and Don of Liberal Economists, once said that conservatives are simply in search of a superior moral justification for selfishness. Karen Stenner, a professor at Princeton, argues that conservatives are authoritarian, punitive, and prone to dictatorial tendencies. Another group of scholars describes conservatives as pinched and neurotic. Academics clearly have it in for conservatives. But these liberal left attacks do contain a kernel of truth. Liberals and conservatives are different. They have very different worldviews, lifestyles, and tendencies. There are real consistent differences between them. Some of those differences are quirky and fun. Scarborough Research, a New York City-based consumer research service, has discovered that conservatives tend to water-ski, hunt, garden, and play musical instruments in far higher numbers than liberals. 
Those on the left are more prone to watch TV, visit an art museum, gamble, or go dancing in a club. Other marketing firms have found that liberals and conservatives tend to make dramatically different consumer choices. Conservatives count beef as their favorite meat, while liberals tend to prefer chicken. Conservatives buy Porsches in overwhelming numbers, while liberals skew heavily toward Volvos. What this means is anyone's guess. Perhaps conservatives are looking for speed, while liberals are bracing themselves for the next accident. On television, advertisers have discovered that conservatives watch Jag, Law and Order, and football, while liberals tune in to Judging Amy, Will and Grace, and for some reason, Judge Judy. At the movies, liberals like films about politicians and lawyers think Aaron Brockovich, while conservatives prefer films about soldiers and cops. How do we know about these differences? Because a wide array of research has taken place in recent years that looks at how people think and live, what they buy, watch and eat, even the moral choices they make. What the research shows is that conservatives and liberals have very different tendencies. Does this mean that all conservatives hate cats, or that none of them watched and enjoyed Aaron Brockovich? Does it mean that there are no liberals out there who hate abstract art? Of course not. I tend to be politically conservative, and yet I drive a Volvo. What we're talking about are tendencies and preferences that are not always correct, but nonetheless largely reflect the realities of modern American life. We know these different tendencies exist because, in a large number of studies and scientific surveys, liberals and conservatives tell us they exist. These differences go beyond the seemingly unimportant consumer decisions people make. Perhaps the biggest divide between liberals and conservatives today is not their consumer preferences or even how they vote, but the underlying values by which they live their lives. Some of these differences we recognize intuitively. Even absent supporting research, consider the manner in which conservatives and liberals express themselves. If you're watching a protest march, you can quickly figure out whether the protesters are liberals or conservatives, even if you don't look at the signs. The way they dress, walk, and handle themselves often give us sufficient clues. One protest in Washington D.C. was recently attended by tens of thousands of people and included drumming workshops, puppet shows, and poetry readings. I don't need to tell you that this protest was organized by the political left. When was the last time you saw conservatives holding puppets at a protest rally? Not that there's anything wrong with that. It's my contention that liberalism and conservatism are not simply political ideologies, but represent divergent ways of life. For those on both sides, their political views are just the tip of an encompassing worldview that addresses the biggest questions about life. This worldview influences the decisions they make about family, work, community, and life. Imagine for a moment that you're at a dinner party and the woman next to you is wearing a multi-colored skirt, Birkenstocks, large rustic jewelry, and no makeup. If she tells you she's pro-choice, it's a good bet she's also opposed to drilling for oil in Alaska. Against Bush's tax cuts, and has certain predictable views about religion, it's also safe to assume she doesn't drive a Hummer. On the other hand, if you meet someone in a suit who just came from a Bible study group, it's a fair bet that this person is conservative. This person is probably not a vegan, is married, or wants to get married, and believes in capitalism.
Professor Bruce Fleming is an avowed liberal who teaches at the conservative U.S. Naval Academy and has observed the distinctive differences between liberals and conservatives over many years. As he puts it, both liberals and conservatives have structural patterns in their lives. In other words, liberalism and conservatism aren't merely lists of disparate beliefs, but configurations of beliefs radiating outward from a center. Liberalism is not simply a set of political ideas, but is today a form of social identity. This sort of analysis is not particularly new. George Orwell noted in his book *The Road to Wigan Pier* that in post-war Britain, politics was closely related to social identity. He found this particularly true on the left. One sometimes gets the impression that the mere words socialism and communism draw towards them with magnetic force every fruit juice drinker, nudist, sandal wearer, sex maniac, Quaker, nature cure quack, pacifist, and feminist in England. He wrote. Of course, he didn't have the benefit of research to determine whether his observation was correct, but accurate or not, Orwell saw a link between the lifestyle choices people made. And their political worldviews. Today we have at our disposal something Orwell did not enjoy: an enormous wealth of research that allows us to track the differences between liberals and conservatives with a very fine degree of specificity. What that research shows is that conservatives and liberals are indeed very different from one another, but they are different in ways that many readers may find startling. Much of this research, gathered from top-rated scientific institutions around the globe, has been completely ignored by the media and academic world for one very simple reason: it does not conform to their ideological stereotypes. Consider a simple example: it has long been assumed that anti-Semitism is a conservative vice that liberals, being the tolerant and open-minded sort, are less prone to embrace. Conservative Republicans are the ones who accept ugly stereotypes about Jews. Supporting evidence? Who needs it? This is just something everyone seems to know. Senator Chuck Schumer exemplified this attitude during an appearance on Bill Maher's HBO show Real Time. There are some, you know, there are some anti-Semites in this country, but most of them would vote Republican anyway. He declared. Naturally, Bill Maher never challenged him, nor would any liberal news anchor on television today. It's widely assumed, even by many conservatives, that anti-Semites are red state Republicans. A survey by the Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs found that Jewish leaders perceived Republicans as being more anti-Semitic. But has anyone actually checked the numbers? The General Social Survey regularly asks thousands of Americans their attitudes on a host of issues. Conducted by the University of Chicago and the National Opinion Research Center, it's one of the most authoritative surveys in the world. A few years ago, the survey asked Americans about Jewish stereotypes: Are Jews more violent? Are they more money-driven? Do they have too much influence? Surprisingly, on every one of these questions, self-described liberals were much more likely to embrace the stereotype than conservatives. Twenty-three percent of those who called themselves very liberal agreed that Jews were prone to violence, compared with only fourteen percent of those who were very conservative. Run the numbers based on whether the respondents considered themselves Republican or Democrat, and you get the same pattern: eighteen percent of strong Democrats agreed with that statement, compared with only nine percent of Republicans. 
when it comes to the stereotype that Jews are inordinately rich and money-driven, 45% of strong Democrats agreed with the statement compared with 36% of strong Republicans. The same numbers came up when the respondents described themselves as conservative or liberal. The same sort of simple research reveals the ridiculous nature of the attacks on conservatives. Take Lakoff's contention about how nurturing and caring liberal parents are compared with those nasty conservatives. Had he done even basic research, he would have discovered that conservatives spend more time with their children than liberals and actually hug them more than liberals do. He would also have discovered that conservatives are much closer to their parents and are more trusting of family members than those on the left. As for the Berkeley studies claiming that whiners tend to be conservatives, had they simply looked at authoritative research on attitudes, they would have found that those on the political left are much more likely to complain about their jobs, their families, their neighbors, their health, and their relative wealth, even when they earn the same as conservatives. In short, the major surveys show that those on the left tend to be chronically dissatisfied with almost everything in their lives. In their attacks on conservatives as uncaring, ignorant, nasty, mean, greedy, angry, selfish, and lazy, liberals are certainly entitled to their opinions. But they are not entitled to their own set of facts. The research is clear. Looking at data gathered by the most authoritative and reliable academic research centers in the country, as well as academic studies published in refereed journals, a pattern emerged that has until now been completely ignored. When compared to conservatives on a long list of personality and moral traits, modern liberals consistently come up short. Liberals are, in the aggregate, more selfish. Liberals are much more likely to think about themselves first and less willing to make sacrifices for others. They're less interested in caring for a physically ill or elderly family member and more concerned with ensuring that their own needs are being met. More focused on money. Liberals are much more likely to report that money is important to them, but that they don't earn enough, and that money is what matters in a job. They're also more likely to be envious of others. Less hard-working. When considering a new job, liberals are more interested in job security and vacation time than their conservative counterparts. They also tend to value hard work less and embrace leisure as more desirable. Conservatism, on the other hand, is directly associated with the so-called Protestant ethic. Less emotionally satisfied. Liberals are much more likely to suffer from a nervous breakdown, attempt suicide, suffer from depression, and be chronically angry. Less honest. Liberals are more likely to believe that it's okay to be dishonest or deceptive, cheat on their taxes and their spouse, keep money that doesn't belong to them, and sell a used car with a faulty transmission to a family member. Less knowledgeable about civic affairs and economics. Despite claims that conservatives are ignorant, studies and surveys show that conservatives and Republicans tend to know more about public affairs, have a better understanding of economics, and do better on word association tests. We'll also discover compelling evidence that conservatives are, again in the aggregate, happier and better adjusted. Conservatives are more satisfied with their lives, their professions, and even their health, even when compared to liberals with the same demographics, age, income, etc. Generally more successful parents. Obviously, there are many exceptions, but conservatives in general are more willing to make sacrifices for their children, 
and their children in turn are less likely to take drugs, smoke, or drink at a young age. Conservative families are also closer. They are more likely to stay in touch with each other on a regular basis and trust each other more. More generous. For all the talk of liberal compassion, the reality is that conservatives are much more likely to donate money and time to charitable causes. Also, the reasons that liberals and conservatives get involved in charities tend to be different. Liberals support charities to make a statement. Conservatives want to improve the lives of the people they're trying to help. Less angry. Conservatives are less likely to become angry at someone, less likely to seek revenge, and less likely to throw or break things in a temper. Conservatives have long argued that liberal policies promote social decay, destroying the work ethic, promoting relativism, and undermining social values. In Slouching Toward Gomorrah, Judge Robert Bork pointed to a coarsening of American culture as the price of liberalism. Ronald Reagan campaigned on the notion that the modern welfare state was undermining the American work ethic. In his book, My Cold War, Irving Kristol wrote about his movement from the political left to the right. What began to concern me more and more were the clear signs of rot and decadence germinating within American society, a rot and decadence that were no longer the consequence of liberalism, but was the actual agenda of contemporary liberalism. Sector after sector of American life has been ruthlessly corrupted by the liberal ethos. It's an ethos that aims simultaneously at political and social collectivism on the one hand and moral anarchy on the other. Free market economists like Milton Friedman have likewise argued that high taxation destroys the work ethic while encouraging a sense of dependence. What I will show is that liberalism not only leads to social decay, but can also lead to personal decay. Richard Weaver once declared, in an oft-overused line, that ideas have consequences. John Maynard Keynes, the economist and keen-eyed critic and social observer, understood this perfectly when he wrote, The ideas of economists and political philosophers, both when they are right and wrong, are more powerful than commonly understood. Indeed, the world is ruled by little else. I will argue that liberalism promotes a way of thinking, a way of life, and a pattern of living that are destructive on many levels. It's easy to view political beliefs as just a bunch of words that have very little to do with everyday life. Even thoughtful conservative authors like David Brooks have emphasized the similarities between liberals and conservatives who may vote differently but send their kids to the same schools, watch the same TV shows, and drive the same SUVs. But what you believe influences how you behave and what you do. Ideas impact behavior, and bad ideas generate bad outcomes. What's more, bad ideas have consequences not simply for individuals, but for their communities and countries as a whole. The liberal line of argument has been that conservatives possess serious flaws and embrace conservatism as a result of their personal defects. My contention, based on a wealth of research, is the opposite. Modern liberal ideas consistently encourage bad habits and destructive behavioral tendencies. For example, modern liberalism holds that truth is a relative thing and that it is difficult to know what reality is. This belief, widely held on the left today, has, as we shall see, a very real and practical effect on how liberals view the need for honesty in both private and public affairs. 
At an even more fundamental level, however, modern liberalism simply absolves its adherents of many difficult and inconvenient responsibilities. Modern liberals believe that it's the responsibility of government to meet the needs of those who are poor or ill. The result is that liberals are actually less charitable than conservatives and less directly and personally concerned with the plight of others. Because liberals believe it's the role of the state to care for the needy. Liberalism fosters an I gave at the office mentality. Simply espousing liberal values and voting for liberal candidates is enough. No other action is required. This is why liberalism is so seductive. It allows one to claim the moral high ground on just about any issue while in effect outsourcing your personal responsibility for doing something about it to the government. It's my argument that liberalism encourages destructive attitudes that are paradoxical and seemingly contradictory. It actively encourages a victim mentality while sanctioning anger as a genuine and healthy emotion. It discourages hard work while at the same time promoting a fixation on money. Indeed, it's my contention that liberalism, far from being a victimless belief system, often damages its own adherents the most. Conservative ideas, on the other hand, promote virtues that make people happier, healthier, more productive, and better citizens. Conservative ideas promote hard work, a family-centered orientation, generosity, honesty, and compassion for others, the kind of virtues that contribute to society. In short, conservatives are makers. They are the people who build, run, and fix things. They make our society function. Liberalism, in contrast, discourages hard work, promotes a sense of entitlement, and often leads to chronic dissatisfaction and an outsourcing of one's moral obligations. In other words, liberalism promotes an attitude of taking. My evidence for these broad and bold assertions is drawn from a wide range of reputable scholarly sources, primarily opinion research surveys. And it's important to stress at the outset that these are aggregate findings. There will be many individual exceptions on both sides. No one should say, and I'm not arguing, that all conservatives are clean, upstanding, moral citizens, while all liberals are selfish, greedy, and angry. But the evidence does show quite clearly that there tend to be important distinctions between these groups. It may also be objected that polls and attitude surveys are imperfect tools and that the differences revealed here are simply a reflection of the fact that liberals are more honest in answering these questions, but there's simply no evidence to support this contention. It is, of course, very difficult to ascertain whether people are giving truthful answers, but validation studies on questions relating to voting or drug use have found that the groups most likely to misreport in such studies are blacks and Democrats. Also keep in mind that we are talking here about the influence of ideas on the way we act and live. While few of us really live up to our principles, it's important that they retain moral authority in our eyes. For the values we exalt or denigrate do have material effect on our behavior. Chapter 1. The Mighty Me, or Why Liberals Are More Self-Centered Than Conservatives. The archetype of the modern liberal is not John F. Kennedy, Franklin D. Roosevelt, Martin Luther King, Hubert Humphrey, or even Jimmy Carter. It's Peter Pan, the mythical character who avoids responsibility, refuses to grow up, and is terribly self-absorbed. Ronald Reagan kept a plaque on his Oval Office desk that read, 
There is no limit to what a man can do if he doesn't care who gets the credit. Reagan often reflected this attitude. After he left the White House, the economy was strong, the Cold War was won, and national pride had been restored. Dismissive of praise, he headed quietly back to California. I'm not a great man, he would say. I just believe in great ideas. In contrast, Bill Clinton has spent his post-White House years giving speeches about what he accomplished as president. Even his closest friends recognize that he is obsessed with his favorite subject, himself. In an in-depth profile of Clinton in the usually friendly Vanity Fair, veteran journalist Robert Sam Anson explained the frustrations of his friends. He just talks. You don't really have a conversation with him. He is just self-absorbed, totally. According to Anson, Clinton has a hankering for attention that makes him a joke even to admirers. His 957-page memoir, My Life, has been called one of the most self-absorbed pieces of literature in American history. Clinton may seem to be an easy target, but he's not alone. He is, in fact, a perfect reflection of contemporary liberalism and its obsession with self, individual freedom, personal growth, and doing what feels good. One of the central aims of modern liberalism is avoiding commitment and responsibilities by outsourcing them to the government. Autonomy and independence, avoiding constraints imposed by family, tradition, churches, and community are major preoccupation. If you don't believe me, consider these results from the highly regarded General Social Survey. Do you get happiness by putting someone else's happiness ahead of your own? Of those who describe themselves as very conservative, 55% said yes. Those who describe themselves as very liberal, only 20% agreed. Would you endure all things for the one you love? More than half, 55% of conservatives said yes, compared with only 26% of liberals. Are you willing to sacrifice your wishes to let the one you love succeed? Only 33% of liberals said yes, compared with 57% of conservatives. Is it your obligation to care for a seriously injured, ill spouse or parent, or should you give care only if you really want to? Fully 71% of conservatives said it was. Less than half, 46% of liberals agreed. Today's liberalism is completely wrapped up with the notion of self. The legacy of the 60s, if it feels good, do it ethos, is alive and well. Modern liberals, as we shall see, often embrace these teachings and incorporate them in the way they live their lives and maintain their relationships. For dramatic proof, go to the streets of a liberal enclave like San Francisco, Seattle, or Vermont. There will be plenty of expensive boutiques, antique dealers, health spas, sushi bars, and upscale coffee shops, but you won't see very many children. The reason is not that right-wingers have dumped buckets of birth control pills into the San Francisco municipal water supply. The simple fact is that many on the liberal left today just don't want to have children. A 2004 survey showed that a typical sample of 100 unrelated adults who call themselves liberal will have 147 children. That contrasts with a typical conservative who is likely to have 208 children per 100 unrelated adults. That's 41% more. Why is this important? Because raising children is a difficult and selfless act that is also an important civic duty. The survival of our society, not to mention our social security system, rests on individuals bringing up a new generation. 
The liberal northeastern states, Vermont, Maine, Massachusetts, and New York, have the lowest fertility rates in the country. They also have the lowest percentage of population under the age of five. In progressive San Francisco, there are more dogs than children. Joel Cutkin points out that Seattle, my hometown, has roughly the same population as it did in the 1960s, but barely half as many children. Indeed, there are nearly 45 percent more dogs than children. Dogs, of course, offer companionship without the burdens and responsibilities of children. Some might conclude that this is a result of the high cost of living in desirable cities like Boston, New York, and San Francisco. But in these childless meccas, we also see some of the highest per capita expenditures on luxury goods, spas, and personal therapies. Kotkin regards San Francisco as a childless liberal boutique city. It's not a lack of money; it's a lack of interest. The general social survey found that 69% of those who called themselves very conservative said it was important to them to have children. Only 38% of corresponding liberals agreed. An online survey, admittedly not scientific, taken by the left-wing website DailyCoast.com, asked readers if they had children and how many. The most popular answers: no children, not going to have any, and don't want any. Meanwhile, the highest fertility rate in the country is found in the most conservative state, Utah, followed by Arizona, Alaska, and Texas, otherwise known as red states, according to the latest National Center for Health Statistics survey. States with the lowest fertility rates are Maine, Massachusetts, and Rhode Island, all blue states. Over half of the women of childbearing age, 15 to 44, are childless in liberal bastions such as the District of Columbia, Vermont, and Massachusetts. Many on the left proudly proclaim themselves to be child-free. They angrily reject the term childless because it implies that they are missing out on something. Partly, this is a result of liberal pessimism about the future. Concerned about overpopulation, dwindling environmental resources, global warming, etc., some liberals don't want to have children because they see them as an environmental hazard. Billionaire Ted Turner reflected this attitude when he thoughtfully announced his regret at having five children. If I was doing it over again, I wouldn't have had that many. But I can't shoot them now, and they're here. No doubt, this sort of sentiment makes for charming conversation around the Turner dinner table. Far more common is the modern liberal notion that children are a burden, something that will get in the way of one's self-fulfillment. As any parent knows, raising children is hard work. It requires emotional commitment, selfless acts, large quantities of time, and scads of money. Many liberals just don't want the inconvenience. When asked by the World Values Survey whether parents should sacrifice their own well-being for those of their children, those on the left were nearly twice as likely to say no. 28% to 15% when compared to conservatives. A look at some popular websites offers plenty of evidence that this is a major strand in modern liberal thinking. The trouble is, many of us bright liberal people know that procreation is a quaint, antiquated concept. And another, I read somewhere a while back that it costs about one million to raise a child from birth to 21 years, assuming they attend college. So, buy a house in San Francisco or have a kid. I'm not actually looking for an answer, but kids are expensive. And another, I'll have the babies if you pay for them. Another offers. I have not been asked very often why I'm childless. If I am, I just say the truth: that I'm too selfish, that I want to spend my time and money on things other than children, that I'm doing my part to counteract all the overbreeders. 
The thought of attending a child's athletic event and sitting through the whole thing is almost enough in itself. Peter Pan could not have put it better. This birth gap presents a quandary for politically active liberals. Not wanting to be inconvenienced with raising their own children, they still want to see their ideas perpetuated. Professor Darren Shurkat of Southern Illinois University worries that because conservatives who have lots of children are not being matched by those on the political left who may well not have kids, these demographic trends will push the country in a more conservative direction. Data indicates that 80% of children end up adopting the political attitudes of their parents. To counterbalance this trend, he argues for increasing immigration and expanding the black population. He also hopes that childless liberals will be able to reproduce themselves in strangers by taking on jobs as teachers, writers, and other people of influence. The idea is to let conservatives raise their children while liberals influence them through the schools and universities. One liberal proposes a more extreme solution. We could just start kidnapping those babies of conservative parents and raise them to be ACLU card-toting liberals. That would address the imbalance without raising populations. The last comment is a joke, of course, but it highlights a disturbing reality. Liberals who express little interest in having children of their own want control over how other people's children are raised. As Hillary Clinton once told Newsweek, there is no such thing as other people's children. Another lefty concurs. I'd say that the author of a popular book has far more aggregate influence than do one set of parents, so if the book is very popular and captures the imaginations of kids, presto, you've done a lot to ensure that the ideas that are important to you live long after you pass on. If it's the idea that matters, then I suppose that there are ways that folks like you can propagate the ideas without having your own kids to be your lab rats. This lack of interest in raising children is matched by the lack of enthusiasm among liberals for making a commitment to marriage. Many on the left prefer to fly solo because marriage gets in the way of their individual freedom. According to the General Social Survey, 65% of those who were very conservative said marriage was important to them, compared with just 30% who were very liberal. Nearly half on the left, 48%, said it was not at all important. This should not be surprising to anyone paying attention to the drift of liberal thinking over the past 40 years. While a majority of liberals clearly still prefer the security and rewards of married life, although they may go through several spouses in their restless search for the ideal partner, many on the progressive left have a clear disdain for family life. Barbara Ehrenreich, a popular fixture on college campuses and a best-selling lefty author and columnist has written, there's a long and honorable tradition of anti-family thought. She approvingly quotes Charles Fourier, the French philosopher who taught that the family was a barrier to human progress, and British anthropologist Edmund Leach, who said, far from being the basis of a good society, the family, with its narrow privacy and tawdry secrets, is the source of all discontents. In another Time essay, the twice-married Ehrenreich slammed marriage and encouraged transitory and ad hoc relationships. She hoped that in the future, kids would be raised by communal groups of adults. Meanwhile, law professor Catherine McKinnon declares that feminism stresses the indistinguishability of prostitution, marriage, and sexual harassment. Feminist Vivian Gornick has claimed that being a housewife is an illegitimate profession. Professor Linda Hirschman of Brandeis says that the family, with its repetitious, socially invisible, physical tasks, is a necessary part of life. 
but it allows fewer opportunities for full human flourishing than public spheres like the market or the government. That's no doubt how Peter Pan would view it, absent the academic language. Nobel laureate Tony Morrison likewise observed, "The little nuclear family is a paradigm that just doesn't work. Why we're hanging on to it, I don't know." The National Organization for Women has, over the years, distributed a bumper sticker that proclaims, "One nuclear family can ruin your whole life." Alice Rossi, former head of the American Sociological Association, explains that a broad alliance on the left now shares the view that the nuclear family and monogamous marriage are oppressive, sexist, bourgeois, and sick. Gloria Steinem advised two generations of young people to seek out self-love rather than loving someone else. The truth is, finding ourselves brings more excitement and well-being than anything romance can offer. She wrote in her 1992 book *Revolution from Within*. Adrian Frost, a self-described feminist comedian and one-time correspondent for Comedy Central's *The Daily Show*, has written a book called *I Hate Other People's Kids*. The more highbrow Washington Monthly has featured such articles as *The Case Against Kids*. Which explains how parents should not sacrifice their careers for their children. Other feminists complain about the inconveniences posed by parents with children. One childless feminist professes to be put out because everyone will make way for a woman with a stroller or a child in tow. Professor Deborah Mullen at Texas Women's University complains that pregnant women get preferential parking. Professor Christopher Clausen, writing in American Scholar, notes that in intellectual circles the phrase "family values" has become a term of ridicule, in part because so few liberal academics are interested in the burdens of having children. He points out the attraction that going childless, excuse me, child-free, poses for academics on the left. This interest has less to do with high-minded idealism than with preventing children from distracting you from yourself. He notes that he admires a friend of the family who decided not to have children, in contrast to his own parents. They liked their freedom too much. Although the man was subordinate to my father at the National Institutes of Health, the couple inhabited a cavernous 18th-century house in Georgetown, instead of, like us, a suburban three-bedroom in Bethesda. They had no need to worry about local schools and playgrounds. They took trips to New York whenever they wanted, and occasionally to Europe. They frequently ate in restaurants. All the important things in life. Linda Hirschman gets down to brass tacks in her book *Get to Work: A Manifesto for Women of the World*, a clarion call for women to be more self-focused. Why avoid having children? Because they get in the way of reaching your full potential. Hirschman explains, "The only life worth living is one that includes a high income and a satisfying career. Having kids and staying home to kiss boo-boos is a losing proposition." She advises women to find the money. When Rabbi Shmuley Boteik published an essay on the internet about the contempt that many liberals show toward parents of large families, he was barraged with nasty emails upbraiding him for the idea that large families are good. Some of them called people with large families breeders. One wrote, "What's the income tax deduction for ten children? It comes to thirty-two thousand dollars, doesn't it? Now, if that religious person happens to give, for example," Five thousand tithing to his church. The first thing you know, they're paying little or no taxes, while the rest of us are paying through the nose. A friend of a friend reports that on a recent trip to Cambridge, Massachusetts, pushing a stroller with several other children in tow, she was actually spit at by a local resident concerned about overpopulating the planet. 
Of course, when the childless man grows old, he will no doubt be living off the taxes provided by this lady's children. This will no doubt come as a surprise to those who are used to hearing leftists talk about the need to help America's children. Modern liberals profess a love for children, supporting an array of social programs designed to help them. In his book *Conscience of a Liberal*, the late Senator Paul Wellstone, Democrat, Minnesota, wrote a chapter on helping children. But the chapter was entirely about government programs and spending federal tax dollars. These programs are seen as the true test of one's commitment to children. When Republicans talked of cutting back on social spending, Bill Clinton declared that they wanted to make war on the kids of this country. Congressman Major Owens accused them of practicing genocide with a smile. Mario Cuomo, during the 1984 Democratic convention, painted conservatives as uncaring toward the young and the elderly. The Republicans believe the wagon train will not make it to the frontier unless some of our old, some of our young, and some of our weak are left behind by the side of the trail. We Democrats believe that we can make it all the way with the whole family intact. Supporting government programs to help the children is a convenient way for liberals to love children without demanding anything of themselves. Supporting government programs that allegedly help children is the perfect path to commitment-free living. Responsibility is limited to paying one's taxes. All this amounts to what Kay Himowitz of the Manhattan Institute calls postmodern post-adolescence, an approach to life glamorized in the television show Seinfeld. Avoid encumbrances. Commitments and responsibilities, and guard your independence and autonomy at all costs. This is the end of the CD. The audio book continues on the next CD.